Chapter 17 And thus did the knights of the temple vanish with their secret, in whose shadow breathed the lofty yearning for the earthly city. But the abstract to which their efforts aspired lived on, unattainable, in unknown regions, and its inspiration more than once in the course of time has filled those spirits capable of receiving it. Victor-Emile Michelet, The Sacré de la Chevalerie, 1932 He had a 1940s face. Judging by the old magazines I had found in the basement at home, everybody had a face like that in the forties. It must have been wartime hunger that hollowed the cheeks and made the eyes vaguely feverish. This was a face I knew from photographs of firing squads, on both sides. In those days men with the same face shot one another. Our visitor was wearing a blue suit, a white shirt, and a pearl-gray tie, and instinctively I asked myself why he was in civilian clothes. His hair, unnaturally black, was combed back from the temples in two bands, brilliantined, though with discretion, showing a bald, shiny crown traversed by fine strands, regular as telephone wires that formed a centered V on his forehead. His face was tanned, marked, marked not only by the explicitly colonial wrinkles. A pale scar ran across his left cheek from lip to ear, slicing imperceptibly through the left half of his black Adolf Monjou mustache. The skin must have been opened less than a millimeter and stitched up, Menser, or a grazing bullet's wound? He introduced himself, Colonel Ardenti, offering Belbo his hand and merely nodding at me when Belbo presented me as an assistant. He sat down, crossed his legs, drew up his trousers from the knee, revealing a pair of maroon socks, ankle length. Colonel, on active service? Belbo asked. Ardenti bared some high-quality dentures. Retired, you could say, or if you prefer, in the reserves. I may not look old, but I am. You don't look at all old, Belbo said. I've fought in four wars. You must have begun with Garibaldi. No, I was a volunteer lieutenant in Ethiopia, then a captain, again a volunteer in Spain, then a major back in Africa until we abandoned our colonies. Silver medal. In forty-three... Well, let's just say I chose the losing side, and indeed I lost everything, save honor. I had the courage to start all over again in the ranks. Foreign Legion, School of Hard Knocks, Sergeant in 46, Colonel in 58 with Masu. Apparently I always choose the losing side. When de Gaulle's leftists took over, I retired and went to live in France. I had made some good friends in Algiers, so I set up an import-export firm in Marseille. This time I chose the winning side, apparently, since I now enjoy an independent income and can devote myself to my hobby. These past few years I've written down the results of my research. Here. From a leather briefcase he produced a voluminous file, which at the time seemed red to me. So, Belbo said, a book on the Templars. The Templars, the colonel acknowledged, a passion of mine almost from my youth. They, too, were soldiers of fortune who crossed the Mediterranean in search of glory. Signor Kasabin has also been studying the Templars, Belbo said. He knows the subject better than I do. But tell us about your book. The Templars have always interested me, a handful of generous souls who bore the light of Europe among the savages of the two Tripolis. 
the Templar's adversaries weren't exactly savages, I remarked. Have you ever been captured by rebels in the Maghreb? he asked me with heavy sarcasm. Not that I recall, I said. He glared at me, and I was glad I had never served in one of his platoons. Excuse me, he said, speaking to Belbo. I belong to another generation. He looked back at me defiantly. Is this some kind of trial, or— We're here to talk about your work, Colonel, Belbo said. Tell us about it, please. I want to make one thing clear immediately, the Colonel said, putting his hands on the file. I am prepared to assume the production costs. You won't lose money on this. If you want scholarly references, I'll provide them. Just two hours ago I met an expert in the field, a man who came here from Paris expressly to see me. He could contribute an authoritative preface. He anticipated Belbo's question and made a gesture, as if to say that for the moment it was best to leave the name unsaid, that it was a delicate matter. Dr. Belbo, he said. These pages contain all the elements of a story, a true story, and a most unusual story, better than any American thriller. I've discovered something, something very important, but it's only the beginning. I want to tell the world what I know, hoping that there may be somebody out there who can fit the rest of the puzzle together, somebody who might read the book and come forward. In other words, this is a fishing expedition of sorts, and time is of the essence. The one man who knew what I know now has probably been killed, precisely to keep him from divulging it. But if I can reach perhaps two thousand readers with what I know, there will be no further point in doing away with me. He paused. The two of you know something about the arrest of the Templars? Signor Kasabin told me about it recently, and I was struck by the fact that there was no resistance to the arrest, and the knights were caught by surprise. The colonel smiled condescendingly. True, but it's absurd to think that men powerful enough to frighten the King of France would have been unable to find out that a few rogues were stirring up the King, and that the King was stirring up the Pope. Quite absurd. Which suggests that there had to be a plan, a sublime plan. Suppose the Templars had a plan to conquer the world, and they knew the secret of an immense source of power, a secret whose preservation was worth the sacrifice of the whole Temple Quarter in Paris— and of the commanderies scattered throughout the kingdom, also in Spain, Portugal, England, and Italy, the castles in the Holy Land, the monetary wealth, everything. Philip the Fair suspected this. Why else would he have unleashed a persecution that discredited the fair flower of French chivalry? The temple realized that the king suspected and that he would attempt its destruction. Direct resistance was futile. The plan required time. Either the treasure, or whatever it was, had to be found— or it had to be exploited slowly, and the temple's secret directorate, whose existence everyone now recognizes. Everyone? Of course, it's inconceivable that such a powerful order could have survived so long without having a secret directorate. Your reasoning is flawless, Belbo said, giving me a sidelong glance. The colonel went on. The Grand Master belonged to the secret directorate, but he must have served only as its cover to deceive outsiders. In La Chevalerie et les Aspects Secrets de l'Histoire, Gautier Walter says that the Templar plan for world conquest was to be finally realized only in the year 2000. The Temple decided to go underground, and that meant that it had to look as if the Order were dead. They sacrificed themselves, that's what they did, 
the Grand Master included. Some let themselves be killed, they were probably chosen by lot. Others submitted, blending into the civilian landscape. What became of the minor officials, the lay brothers, the carpenters, the glaziers? That was how the Freemasons were born, later spreading throughout the world, as everyone knows. But in England things happened differently. The king resisted the Pope's pressure and pensioned the Templars off. They lived out their days meekly in the Order's great houses. Meekly? Do you believe that? I don't. In Spain the Order changed its name to the Order of Montesa. Gentlemen, these were men who could bring a king to heel. They held so many of his promissory notes that they could have bankrupted him in a week. The King of Portugal, for instance, came to terms. Let us handle it like this, dear friends, he said. Don't call yourselves Knights of the Temple any more. Change the name to Knights of Christ, and I'll be happy. In Germany there were very few trials. The abolition of the order was purely formal, and in any case there was a brother order, the Teutonic Knights, who at the time were not merely a state within the state. They were the state, having acquired a territory as big as those countries now under the Russian heel, and they kept expanding until the end of the fifteenth century when the Mongols arrived. But that's another story, because the Mongols are at our gates even now. But I mustn't digress. Yes, let us not digress, Belbo said. Well, then. As everyone knows, two days before Philip issued the arrest warrant, and a month before it was carried out, a haywain drawn by oxen left the precincts of the temple for an unknown destination. Nostradamus himself alludes to it in one of his centuries. He looked through his manuscript for the quotation. Sous la pasture d'animaux ruminants, par eux conduits au ventre herbopolique, Soldats cachés, les armes primenants. The Haywain is a legend, I said, and I would hardly consider Nostradamus an authority in matters of historical fact. People older than you, Signor Casaban, have had faith in many of Nostradamus's prophecies. Not that I am so ingenuous as to take the story of the Haywain literally. It's a symbol, a symbol of the obvious established fact that Jacques de Molay, anticipating his arrest, turned over command of the order, as well as its secret instructions, to a nephew, Comte de Beaujeu, who became the head of the now clandestine temple. Are there documents that bear this out? Official history, the colonel said with a bitter smile, is written by the victors. According to official history, men like me don't exist. No, behind the story of the Haywain lies something else. The temple's secret nucleus moved to a quiet spot, and from there they began to extend their underground network. This obvious fact was my starting point. For years, even before the war, I kept asking myself where these brothers in heroism might have gone. When I retired to private life, I finally decided to look for a trail. Since the flight of the Haywain had occurred in France, France was where I should find the original gathering of the secret nucleus. But where in France? He had a sense of theater. Belbo and I were all ears. We could find nothing better to say than, well, where? I'll tell you. Where would the Templars have hidden? Where did Hugues de Pain come from? Champagne, near Troyes. And at the time the Templars were founded, Champagne was ruled by Hugues de Champagne, who joined them in Jerusalem just a few years later. When he came back, he apparently got in touch with the abbot of Citeaux, and helped him initiate the study and translation of certain Hebrew texts in his monastery. 
Think about it. The white Benedictines, St. Bernard's Benedictines, also invited the rabbis of Upper Burgundy to come to Cito, to study whatever texts Hugues had found in Palestine. Hugues even gave St. Bernard's monks a forest at Bar-sur-Aube, where Clairvaux was later built. And what did St. Bernard do? He became the champion of the Templars, I said. But why? Did you know he made the Templars even more powerful than the Benedictines? That he prohibited the Benedictines from receiving gifts of lands and houses, and had them give lands and houses to the Templars instead? Have you ever seen the Forêt d'Orient near Troyes? It's immense, one commandery after the other. And in the meantime, you know, the knights in Palestine weren't fighting. They were settled in the temple, making friends with the Moslems instead of killing them. They communicated with Moslem mystics. In other words, St. Bernard, with the economic support of the Counts of Champagne, built an order in the Holy Land that was in contact with Arab and Jewish secret sects. An unknown directorate ran the Crusades in an effort to keep the order going, and not the other way around. And it set up a network of power that was outside royal jurisdiction. I am a man of action, not a man of science. Instead of spinning empty conjectures, I did what all the long-winded scholars have never done. I went to the place the Templars came from, the place that had been their base for two centuries, their home, where they could live like fish in water. Chairman Mao says that revolutionaries must live among the people like fish in water, I said. Good for your chairman, but the Templars were preparing a revolution far greater than the revolution of your pigtailed communists. They don't wear pigtails any more. No? Well, so much the worse for them. As I was saying, the Templars must have sought refuge in Champagne. Pain? Trois? The eastern forest? No, Pain was and still is a tiny village. At the time it had a castle at most. Trois was a city, too many of the king's men around. The forest, which the Templars owned, was the first place the royal guards would look. Which they did, by the way. No, I said to myself, the only place that made sense was Provence.